Take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. It's been a while since we've been in John. I've so missed our time together. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a uh, children's church that has a message specifically geared towards that age group. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Before we read, I'd like to remind you of the purpose of the Gospel of John as given to us by the Apostle. In John chapter 20, as he ends his Gospel, he says the following, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, what John gives us, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for this entire gospel. And so as we are reading through the gospel, we are reading with John's purpose in mind to reveal to us who Jesus is, that we may believe in him and thus have life in his name, and that as believers, we may have a greater understanding, a better picture as to who our Savior is. Our text this morning is going to begin in, verses, in verse 16 and go through verse 18, but in order to pick up the context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 18. So please direct your attention there to get, uh, direct your attention there in your scripture. And follow along as I read. John chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, the entire purpose for the miracle. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. <laughs> not my fault. And they said to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Fathers, we look into your word. Would you grant insight? Would your Holy Spirit... Uh, Give us sight that we may see your truth. And if there's one here who's not a believer, may you open their eyes to the gospel that they may rest by faith in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. In 
It was January 1st, many years ago, somewhere in the early 2000s, probably 2001 is my guess. January 1st, 2000, those of us that were there were all hunkered thinking the world was going to explode in the new millennia. So nothing much happened that year. It was actually very boring. Um, 2001, January 1st, 2001, 2002, uh, my family would always uh, buy fireworks to celebrate the new year. And um, we had three boys in our family, and all of us were rambunctious, except for my older brother, who was always mature and irritating. Um, but we were rambunctious, and we had people over to the house. We'd build a big bonfire, and we'd stay up till midnight and shoot off fireworks. And my dad and my mom would always go to bed early, so the fun never really happened until after they went to bed. And so here I am in the backyard with my other teen friends and my brother, and we had a genius idea. My dad had just finished a project on the house and had some leftover PVC pipe, and the supplies to, uh, to make things out of PVC pipe, and we had bottle rockets, and it was every young man's dream to shoot some sort of bazooka or RPG, and so we decided, why shouldn't we just take PVC pipe and make our own rocket launchers, put the bottle rockets in the PVC pipe, hold them over our shoulders, you get on one side of the yard, I'll get on the other, and we'll stage a war. Of course, nothing bad could happen in that scenario. And, uh, and it was even better because my parents were in bed, so they didn't know what was happening. And so we, uh, kids don't do this, okay? Um, we went into the garage, got the materials, and built some rocket launchers out of PVC pipe and um, lit some bottle rockets, and we're having a great time shooting uh, back and forth against the yard, and we would run and find different areas to hide. And I ran thinking I was safe, um, next to the house behind a bush, my brother, uh, my younger brother Andrew, um, lit a bottle rocket, put it in his rocket launcher, and aimed it right at me, which was also aimed at the house. And as the bottle rocket went off, it didn't go straight, as we would imagine. It curved up and hit the side of our house, which was vinyl siding at that time, made a hole in the vinyl siding, stuck into the side of the house, and exploded on the side of the house. Okay. And, and in that moment as a child, you have that time where you legitimately think your parents are going to kill you. And that was one of those moments. And so we were, we had a, it was like two o'clock in the morning at this point. We had a decision to make, do we go wake up dad or not? And through a series of events in our great wisdom, we decided not to wake up my father, but to, to wait until the next morning. The next morning we came down for breakfast. My dad had not been outside yet and we sat down and we explained to him, Dad, we shot the house last night with a bottle rocket and it blew a hole in the vinyl siding. And his question to us at that point was a question that every parent asks, but it's always foolish to ask. My dad looked at us and he said, why did you do that? And like any teenage boy, the only answer we have is a grunt, right? I don't know. Why, why would you do that? I don't know why. <laughs> why would you take a bottle rocket and aim it at that? It wasn't me, it was my brother, right? It was the brother you has gave me. 
that tempted me in this moment? And, and why would you do this? And there was no good answer why other than the fact, as my dad taught us growing up, if you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough. And so our backsides became leather-like and tough during those years, right? Why? It's a question that, when asked, often has no good answer. Why did you do that? I, 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 I don't know why I did that. There's a question that we have and it's the question of why that's answered for us in the, pa- in, the, in the passage this morning. And it is clear what the answer is. There is no doubt what the answer is. And it's an answer that's not just true in the first century. It's an answer that's true even today. And it's a question you, you may have had in your mind and never really had a clear answer. And in my message this morning, I'd like to clear it up for you. And it's this. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? If you were to sit down with a first century Jew and Jesus walked among them and he did miracles and they still chanted crucify him, crucify him, you could sit down with a Jew and you could say, why did you reject him? Why did you say no? Why didn't you believe? He healed your family member or you saw the hand, the withered hand come to life. You saw the dead raised. You saw the lame healed. You saw the blind be made so they could see. Why didn't you believe? Why? And in their spiritual blindness, enveloped by the darkness of the world, they may have given you that same answer. I don't know. But friends... The scripture gives us that answer. And it's given, to, it's given for us in this passage. In verses 16, 17, and 18, there are two phrases, or there's one phrase that is repeated two times. And it says this in verse 16, and this was why. In verse 18, and this was why. My message this morning, I'd like to give a little bit of a commentary on the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, which says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And you would ask the question, why? Why? Why didn't they receive him? And our passage this morning tells us why. I'd like to draw out from this passage this morning two reasons that John gives us for why the Jewish people rejected Christ as their Messiah. And I believe as we look at those two reasons together, you will be convinced that those two reasons are still relevant today and are still the reasons why people reject Jesus today. So let's look at the first one, and that is this. They rejected Jesus because... Christ refused to accept man's attempts to improve God's law. One of the rules of of preaching of speech is that your main points are supposed to be short and memorable. I couldn't figure out a way to do that this morning. And so if you're taking notes, I'm sorry, but here it is. They rejected him because Christ refused to accept man's attempts to improve God's law. 
That's what it was. That's the first reason. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Doing these things. What are these things? He's healing people. He's bringing grace and mercy from heaven to this earth. He's forgiving sins. He's restoring people's lives. It's evidenced in the immediate context by Jesus stepping in to an undeserving man who did not have faith in Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. The point of the man by the pool of Siloam was not that this man believed God and believed in Jesus and he was healed because of his faith. It was that Jesus stepped in and healed this man as an act of mercy. Even though this man would reject him, he did it on the Sabbath to prove a point. These things, it's not as though Jesus was breaking God's law or breaking the, the Ten Commandments. These things are acts of mercy and got grace and power from heaven on this earth. But he was doing them on the Sabbath. Jesus made a point of doing some of his miracles on the Sabbath day. However, the Jewish leadership believed that Jesus was violating the Sabbath because he was violating their rules even though he was within God's boundaries. And so there's something we have to be very clear about this morning, and it's this. We have to remember that Jesus kept God's law in every respect through genuine faith and fervent prayer as a man. As a true man, Jesus totally and completely fulfilled God's law. He kept it in every way. And yet, the Pharisees said that he was breaking the Sabbath. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Pharisees had orchestrated a man-made system to manipulate and control the Jewish nation to their own ends, okay? So we'll see under here that the Pharisees added to God's law. Jesus did not reject the Sabbath. Jesus refused to accept their version of the Sabbath. We will see this Sabbath concept. I think it's good for us to pause for just a minute, remind ourselves what the Sabbath is and what its role is in the life of believers today. We'll see this concept really unfolded more for us in chapter 7 and chapter 9. And so when we get to that point, we're going to do a little bit more. We're going to elongate our learning, our, uh, our understanding of the Sabbath a little bit. But until then, I'd like to just give you a brief overview of the Sabbath and the life of the believer. The Sabbath is given to us before the fall and before the law, which means God has set this pattern up in a perfect system, in a perfect um, garden, in an arena of righteousness, and he models that for us by resting from his normal creative work on the seventh day. This is then given as a command to God's people in Exodus chapter 20 as part of what we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue there. And then is expanded in the second giving of the law, the 
Deutero, second, Namas law in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, it's, it's expanded for us and it reads as following. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You'll rest. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, in your house, you're responsible for this no matter who's there. That your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you, not only rest, but you shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, you shall worship and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm for therefore the Lord your God commanded you keep the Sabbath day. God has given the Sabbath as a time of rest and worship for one day out of seven as a pattern for God's people. God's pattern is not work until you collapse and burn out, take a month off to recover, and then burn out again. God's pattern for man is to rest one day in seven for physical rest and worship. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. The culmination of the Sabbath law is fulfilled in Christ. So you are no longer bound by the Old Testament Sabbath law. That's fulfilled in Jesus and has given us rest through salvation and has given us an eternal rest to come, shown in Hebrews chapter 4, in heaven. However, the pattern still stands. It was given pre-fall, pre-law. And so the pattern for mankind still stands. And so I believe God's intention for every believer is to have a pattern of rest in your life by devoting one day out of seven to rest from your normal labors and set it aside for worship. You say, well, my lifestyle isn't it doesn't really lend itself to that, then friend, you need a change of lifestyle. Because this is God's pattern. This is God's best. And we'll look more in that in the coming chapters, but I just want to draw that conclusion. Some of you may not come to that same conclusion about the Sabbath, and that's okay. This is an interpretational viewpoint. I, I do think that that, that that interpretation I just gave you is the best representation of what Scripture presents. And we'll make that argument when we get to chapter 7 and chapter 9. For now, what's beneficial for us is to understand that the Pharisees had added to God's law. In fact, the Pharisees had come up with 613 laws. 365 negative commands, one for each day, and 248 positive laws. Sounds like some of the homes you guys were brought up in, right? 613 laws, laws of control and manipulation, that if you abided by what they said, you were blessed, you were fine, and if you went against what they said, you were shamed, and they claimed that they spoke for God, and so thus, if you went against what they said, you were going against what God said. Just a note, a brief note of application for all of the households here. It is not wrong to have rules in your house. Just make it very clear to your children and your grandchildren what rules are house rules and what rules are God's rules. Make sure you delineate the two or you can raise Pharisees without knowing it. 
They used these laws, once again, to control the people, to manipulate them for their own purposes, because they thought that adding to God's law improved it. I want you to be very careful here. If God gives 100 rules, 105 is better, isn't it? And if 105 is better, what about 125? And if 125 is good, what about 150? Do I hear 160? How about 175? 175 going to 80. 200. 200. Wow. 300. Oh, man, that must be even better. Four, 500, 600 rules. That must be really good. Because if 100 is God's plan, surely 600 is an improvement on God's plan, right? We see a pattern in Scripture, and I want you to think about this carefully, friend. It is a danger for us to ignore God's law and explain away our fleshly desires. That is a danger. It's a a very real danger. But did you know that if you look in Scripture, the pattern of God's people is actually to add to God's law rather than to remove God's law. It all began in the garden, didn't it? I mean, Satan comes to Eve and he says, has God said? And she says, oh yes, God has said we should not eat of that tree. And then what does she do? She adds to it. Nor should we touch it. You see, from the very beginning, man's natural bend is to Add to what God has said. And we need to be so careful, friend. I want to read you a quote from John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. He says, if I venture beyond the pole, or that would be the marker of the Bible, I am on enchanted, that's not a good way, enchanted ground and subject to illusions and distortions. It's a complicated Statement, but what he's saying is when I go beyond scripture, I need to realize that I am on thin ice, we would say. That when I add to scripture and think that I'm improving it, that I am in danger, a very real danger, of creating my own religion. The goal of our lives is to hold our consciences, listen carefully, to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's the goal. I know that gets said in in a legal sense, but friends, that's our goal, isn't it? To say that my conscience is held bound to Scripture. What is the warning here? The warning is what Jesus gives the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is that your heart is taken from God and placed in your own version of God. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 7. In vain do they worship me. Teachings as doctrine, the commandments of men. 
Listen carefully. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so here's the teaching of Scripture. When you go beyond what God has said and you say, thus says the Lord, you have replaced the truth and nullified the gospel because the Bible is no longer enough. So friends, we must be so careful. That is why the warning is given in Deuteronomy 4 and Revelation chapter 22. You shall not add to the word of God, nor should you take away from it. Some of you have um, seen that just in the context of perhaps adding more books of the Bible or taking away books of the Bible. But friend, the implication is adding even a command that God does not add. For then you have replaced and usurped the genuine gospel. Jesus was committed to the word of God, and because of that, he refused to conform to a man-made system, and they hated him for it. They hated him for it. They couldn't control him. They couldn't manipulate him, because all of their laws they had made up had no bearing on the conscience of Jesus, because Jesus' conscience was bound to the very word and law of God. And so this pattern in Scripture that they tried to impose on the conscience and the heart of Christ had no weight. They rejected him because he refused to abide by their attempts to improve God's law. Secondly, they rejected him because Christ claimed total equality with the Father. What is the second reason they rejected him is because he claimed complete or total equality with the Father. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now and I am working. Man, that's a kind of a confusing verse, isn't it? Whenever we come to a verse like that that you're confused about, you need to remember that there are statements given in this context, that 2,000 years later, if we don't understand the context in which it's given, we go, what in the world does that mean? If the Lord tarries 200 years from now, somebody's going to unearth some sort of text message from someone else who says, I'm so glad they let us demask today. And they're going to say, man, I bet they were at some sort of Halloween party. Can you believe that back then, hundreds of years ago, people got sick and they made them wear these masks all over? I bet people couldn't even tell who they were. I wonder what kind of mask. I would have worn a mask that was like a dog. You know, what, what character would you be? And you say, well, okay, you misunderstand the context of what was happening then, right? And so when we see a verse like this, we don't understand it. The first thing we need to think about is that there's something about the culture and the context of the time that we don't understand, that if we did understand it, this verse would make complete sense. And here's the piece of information that you need to understand. What did the Pharisees control on the Sabbath? They controlled work. That's what they controlled. I mean, they had everything from, uh, you can't go more than 100 yards from your home, because if you did, you would be going on a journey. And so what would some people do? They would 
they gave them a liberty to have a hundred yard rope or around a hundred yards that they could tie to themselves and then tie to a stake that was a hundred yards from their home so that they would still be tied to the hundred yards from their home and thus they could go 200 yards without going on a journey and all these foolish, foolish things, right? That they had made up all these rules and then they said, well, if you go against that, if you go 201 yards or if your rope's too long, you're violating God's law. And they consider that work. And Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. And there are, are two very specific parts of equality with the nature of God that Jesus claims. First, he claims that he is unified with God's essence. You could say God's nature. You could say God's being. If we were to talk about the Trinity, we would say one nature, three persons. That Jesus had a divine nature and a human nature, and those were unified in his person, I mean, in his person of the second person of the Trinity. Two natures, one person in Jesus. God, one nature, three persons. That sounds a little bit complicated. But Jesus is claiming unification not in the person of the Godhead, but in the nature of the Godhead. And he does that with the phrase, my father. And this may not seem earth-shattering to you, but to the Jews, they would claim that, Jesus, that God, excuse me, God the Father, was God and the Father of the Jewish nation. Thus, he would say, they would say, our Father. As the Jews, he's our Father as a nation. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, how does it start? Our Father, who art in heaven. But they would never, ever dream of calling God my Father. And when Jesus said, my Father is working, he makes a very specific statement. He uses a first-person possessive, my. And it was like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb in that statement because they knew what he was saying when he said that. My father. Whoever the father is, I share his same nature. Secondly, not only unified in essence, but unified in mission. He says, my father is working until now. In other words, Jesus, God and Jesus did not stop working on the seventh day. God rested from the work that he had made. Yes, he rested from his creative work, but aren't we thankful that he didn't rest from his sustaining work? And so there was this huge debate between all these rabbis that went for hundreds of years, <clears throat> excuse me, as to what exactly that meant. How can God rest and still maintain the universe? And so they came to the conclusion, the right biblical conclusion, that God did not rest from his sustaining work, but from his creating work. And so God continues to work every moment of every day in every place, even on the Sabbath, because as God, he has the right and the ability to control all things at all times, for all time. 
And what does Jesus say? My Father, who is working until now, and then in the Greek, there's not a conjunction there like we have in English, and. There's none there. He says, I am working. And they say, whoa, 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 time out. You just claimed equality with the essence of God. And you just claimed that it's through your power that you can sustain the universe and are sustaining the universe and the entire universe, no matter what day it is, no matter what time it is, no matter what place it is, bows to your control. And so what Jesus claims here is equality in both essence and mission in his work. If we could rewrite this and expand it a little bit so we could better understand it, it would say the following. Yahweh works constantly without ceasing and sustaining the universe through works of mercy and grace, even on the Sabbath. And I, as his son, am doing the same. That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone listening recognized that this was an outright claim to deity. He was saying that he was equal in God, to God in both his essence and his work. And it was this statement from Christ that led them to a watershed moment. You know what a watershed is? Watershed is a peak that if a, if a drop of water falls one inch on this side, it will end up over here. And if it falls one inch on this side, it will end up over here. It's a watershed moment. And here is the moment. If they accepted what he said to be true, they would have to recognize that he was their God and that they would have to align under his authority rather than asking Jesus to align under their authority. That was the moment. And when they rejected Christ, there was no option but to get rid of him. And so we find verse 18, while they were seeking not just to persecute him, look down at verse 18 with me, but all the more to kill him. This guy has to go. He will not be controlled. He will not be manipulated. He claims that he, in essence, is God and does the work of God. And so we, either we embrace him and submit to him or we reject him and get rid of him. That's the moment. They rejected Jesus on the basis of his authority. His authority. Christ refused to accept man's improvement to the law, and Christ claimed complete equality with the Father. And the, the argument that I would like to make for us this morning, now understanding that passage, is that this is the exact same reason people reject God today. The exact same reason. There is nothing new under the sun, as we learned in Ecclesiastes. Satan is still at work, blinding the hearts of the unsaved, enveloping them in the darkness of this world. This world has recreated a Jesus of their own imagination for them to accept. The unsaved version of Jesus is an all-inclusive, non-judgmental, fluffy Jesus who exists to serve their desires and their wants rather than... The all-powerful God who exists for them to serve. 
They have recreated a Jesus who is attractive to the unsaved world. However, the world and its blindness and its darkness has rejected the true Jesus. Because Jesus claims full authority from God. He claims the full essence of God. And if you accept that, you have to align under his authority. Let me show you some ways in which this is worked out in our society today. The leaders of the Jewish nation and the Jewish people rejected God because rejected Jesus because he refused to be manipulated and controlled by their man-made system and he claimed to be God. He worked on the Sabbath. People today reject him because if they have if they re, if they, excuse me if they accept the biblical Jesus they lose their autonomy. The unsaved world says, I want to be my own person with my own dreams and my own desires. I want my accomplishments to come from me and me alone as I am a self-sustaining, self-dependent, self-identifying person. Any Jesus that would call me to die to myself and die to my desires in favor of living in self-denial is not a Jesus that I will accept. And so therefore... I will live with autonomy. I reject Jesus because an acceptance of him is a loss of my autonomy. It's also a loss of self-rule. I want to be my own boss. Not only I want to be who I want to be, but I want to rule myself. I want to make the final call in all the areas of my life. I will not submit to any authority other than me. I feel it is true or right. Therefore, I will claim it to be true or right. And my truth is the truth. And no one can tell me otherwise. A loss of self-rule. And so they reject the Jesus of the Bible. Another possibility is that they reject the Jesus of the Bible because of a different definition of happiness. The biblical Jesus doesn't make me happy in the way that I think he should. I want a God who will keep me comfortable in my life. I want a God who will give me everything that I define as good and everything that I define as best. I refuse to worship a God who works in ways that I do not understand and says that he will even bring what I see as hard things into my life and he says they're best for me. I don't understand that. I reject that God. I want a God of comfort. I want a God of the American dream that I can make it on my own, by myself, for myself. They reject the simplicity of the gospel. The world rejects a God who says that I am totally depraved and have nothing to do with my own salvation but to rest in the grace of God by faith. I will only worship a God who will recognize that I have some sort of natural goodness in me and that I play some sort of part in my salvation. That's the only God I will accept because I can't be that bad, can I? 
Surely there's something that I have to do. Surely I bring something other than my sin to the table. I won't worship a God who tells me that I am dead in my trespasses and sins, totally depraved, and it takes an act of God to save me. And my only responsibility is to rest in faith. They reject Jesus because the exclusivity of the gospel. The world rejects the statement, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Friends, it all is about authority. They reject Jesus because the comprehensive nature of genuine faith. I don't want a God telling me what to do in every area of my life. And finally, and there are more, the delayed promise of prosperity. This world wants their best life now. Immediate gratification. Sacrificing the future for pleasure today. You only live once, so make sure you do it now. Live life to the fullest. Experience everything while you can and then slip into nothingness. And a God who says otherwise, I will not accept. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're probably agreeing with those statements right now. Yep, that's it. That's why I haven't been saved yet. That's why I haven't come to Christ in faith. Because of what you just said, those things, those statements, those are the hindrances in my heart. Those are the holdups for me of why I have not come to Christ for salvation. Because it is an authority issue. All of those statements are based on the fact that you have to, have to line your heart, have to align your heart, submit your heart to God's authority, and that God does not exist to serve you, you exist to serve him. Philippians chapter 2 gives us a beautiful promise and a dire warning. That there has been a name that is bestowed on Jesus, a name that is above every name. The name of Lord. The name of King. If you want a big old English word, the name of potentate. That means the head of everything and does whatever he wants. King, God, Lord. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of things in heaven and things in earth, but listen carefully, and things under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, listen to me. The question is not, will you bow to the authority of Jesus Christ? The question is, when will you bow to the authority of Jesus Christ? Will it be on this earth by faith, or will it be in eternity by choice before you're cast into outer darkness for all of eternity? For you will bow to the authority of Jesus by faith or by, or by force. That is the issue. It is the issue of authority that God exists over all and that Jesus is the essence of all. But as we conclude this morning, I would like to share something beautiful for you. 
And that is, it is the very authority of God that is the most blessed part of our salvation. Listen carefully. Satan has taken the most beautiful and wonderful and joy-filled aspect of our faith and through the blinding of sin and through the darkness of, his, of this world, he has convinced them that it is bad for them. He has lied to them. It's the same thing that happened in the garden, isn't it? You won't die. God's told you this because he's actually threatened by you. God's threatened by your autonomy. God's not threatened by you. God's, Satan says God's threatened by you because you're going to be like him. And so if you step out on your own, if you step out on your own and make yourself the ultimate authority, you'll finally have real life. That's the lie of the devil. That's what the tree of life was all about. It's a statement of authority. Don't eat that fruit. Why? Because you need to show every time you reject that fruit that you're living under the authority of God and by eating it, you're living under the authority of yourself. But Christian, listen carefully. This, everything that I listed of the reasons why people reject is a beautiful portrait of God's grace. Think of each one of these statements as a brush stroke in a painting of beauty that God has painted for your salvation. For it is in the loss of your autonomy and your expressive individualism that you find genuine friendship and community within the body of Christ. It is here that we set self aside and find a part in God's story. It is in setting aside our individualism that we find genuine love and friendship. It is in the joyful submission to God that we find a loving and merciful master. For the unsaved in their blindness do not see that they serve the master of hell. And yet, friends, we serve the king of heaven. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is in realizing that everything that God brings into your life is for your spiritual good and for your spiritual growth that you actually find peace resting in the arms of God's sovereignty and in his joy. It is in the simplicity of the gospel that you find the breadth of God's love it is in the exclusivity, the exclusivity of the gospel that we rest in genuine faith and grace. It is in the comprehensive nature of genuine faith that brings us hope that you can actually change. Your faith isn't limited to just one part of your life. It covers your entire life, which means, friends, all of the rough edges that you and I have and all of those sinful aspects to our nature, God can actually change you, for it touches everything. It is in the delayed promise of prosperity and eternity. It's that that gives me hope in suffering. And motivation for holiness, for friends, if in this world, this is the best that it gets, we are all in big trouble. 
So the lies that Satan uses to blind the hearts of men are the beautiful brushstrokes that God uses for those who have faith to see the beauty of the gospel. The world sees God's character as oppressive, sees God's commands as binding, sees God's works as vindictive, and believers through the Holy Spirit realize that God's character is love, His commands are freeing, and His works are gracious and kind. So don't make the same mistake the Pharisees made. Place your faith in Christ. Accept Him for who He is. Cast off the blindness of this world and come to the light and freedom of Jesus. Heavenly Father, Your Word is so clear and it gives hope and joy. May we rest and trust in the beauty of the Gospel. May we understand that the reason that the world is rejecting is the reason of authority. And may we bend the knee. Friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can I share a burden that is on my heart? That there may be members at community or people that are here who believe themselves to be Christians because they prayed some prayer they don't remember at the age of four. Or that at some time in some place they walked an aisle, but they've never bend, they've never bent their knee to Jesus. They've never given their heart to the authority of Jesus Christ. And if that is you this morning, no matter how long you've claimed to be a Christian, no matter how long you've sat in these pews or attended church, would you call out to God in humility? and give your life over to Him and claim Him as Lord as you recognize the authority that He possesses in your life. Christian, would you, would you worship the beauty of the portrait of the gospel that God gives in aligning our hearts under His rule and His control? However the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. You do business in the quietness of this moment as the instrument plays.